You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Dacra Keltner is the author of Born to be Good, The Science of a Meaningful Life, The Power Paradox, How We Gain and Lose Influence. His new book is Awe, The New Science of Everyday Wonder and How It Can Transform Your Life. Thank you for joining me, Dacra. It's great to be with you, Rick. Thank you. You know, one of the things I noticed right off the bat in this book and I really like it. It's very interesting technique you have. And I'll just read a, a, a sample paragraph here. Awe is the emotion we experience when we encounter vast mysteries that we don't understand. Why would I recommend that you find happiness in an emotion that is so fleeting and evanescent? A feeling so elusive that it resists simple description that requires the unexpected and moves us towards mystery and the unknown rather than what is certain and easy. Now, what is interesting to me about this paragraph, and this approach is repeated throughout your book, is you ask the reader a lot of questions. And yeah. I think that's a great way to, to work in a book about awe. Yeah. Thanks for noticing that, Rick. You know, when I wrote this book uh, about awe, this wonderful emotion, that arises when we encounter vast mysteries. Um, you know, the one of the things that's uh, just at the very heart of awe is uh, it's about questions and mysteries. And you know, when you feel awe in response to somebody's extraordinary kindness, or you see a lightning storm, you wonder why, and you try to figure it out out of this emotion, and it leads to more mysteries. And so, I wanted the book to engage the reader in mysteries, in questions, in their own inquiry uh, about the mysteries of life that is, are so closely tied to awe. So thanks for noticing that. It was a key editorial decision to really center it upon questions and mysteries. You know, you are a scientist of emotions. Yeah. And, and you spend a lot of time in your life uh, looking at emotions scientifically, which seems like almost an oxymoron since science yeah. of at first pretty much excluded emotions from its edict. Talk about the decision to study emotions and the new abilities of science to to diagram them out and dial them in. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it's fascinating. Um, you know, we tend to think of, you know, the mind as being made up of thoughts and uh, memories and ideas about, you know, action and then feeling, feeling states. And a lot of great philosophers from David Hume to Charles Darwin to Descartes, Aristotle had a lot, a lot to say about the human emotions. And then for whatever reason, scientifically, we ignored them. Um, you know, we had the cognitive revolution of the 1950s to 80s, really thinking of the mind as this computer. And, and then the field started to realize that you cannot make sense of human thought and action and judgment without feeling, right? And there are a couple of key discoveries there in the 70s and 80s. Paul Ekman's research on facial expressions. Wow, people in remote New Guinea, they express emotion like we do. And then we started to develop measures of emotion in the face. Um, 
you know, some of the early neuroscientific studies of the split brain patients, you sever the two hemispheres uh, from communicating with one another and, and the right hemisphere seems to respond to the feeling of information, right? Um, so, uh, you know, that was uh, uh, significant. And since then, we've really, like you said, learned how to, um, you know, map emotions in the face, study them in the voice, look at how they influence memory and thought, look at the brain and physiology. So we've made a lot of progress in diagramming these emotions. You know, to the real power of this book, and it's really, it lives up to the title, it has an awesome power to read this book, is that you made a key decision in this book, another key decision besides asking questions. This book is about you. It's a, yeah. really a very yeah. personal book, and it's mm. moving, incredibly moving story of the death of your brother, Rolf, that yeah. runs through it and, and leads you to explore the mystery of awe. So talk about that decision to write about that in a scientific book and how that emotional event affected your scientific thought. Yeah, you know, Rick, thanks for asking. I was, uh, you know, um, struggling. I was doing all this science of awe and publishing these papers. And I was really thinking that the book would be another three years away. I love to have a lot of evidence before I write a book uh, and really understand the phenomenon of interest. And then my brother passed away, you know, and um, my brother, Rolf, who I'd shared this extraordinary childhood with, born in Mexico and lived in the late 60s in Laurel Canyon. And, um, and uh, you know, then grew up you know, in our formative teen years in the country and swam in rivers and hiked and just shared this awe-filled childhood. And when he passed away, the evening he passed away, I watched him go. And, and it, it, like a lot of people I've learned in our research, it was vast and mysterious. You know, I, I, I felt that he was surrendering to the end of his life, that he was moving into this realm that was beyond my understanding. Um, and I was awestruck at life. And then afterwards, Rick, you know, the grief that followed, I, you know, I had all of these extraordinary experiences of seeing him in the streets and hearing him, his voice in the wind and thinking about, you know, just sensing him in trees, going to mountains he and I had hiked and feeling him there. And I feel him around me to this day. And those experiences were so profound that I, I gathered a bunch of books and I said, I got to write about this. And it's kind of about awe and it's going to be personal. You know, I am a scientist, but I was so immersed in this mystery that I had to kind of let those words come out. And, and it became part of the book is really a story about my brother, brotherhood, uh, and what the end of life means and what awe's role in that experience is. It really um, drives the book and unites the book, and it's appropriate because awe is is an emotion. So to give a book about awe, an emotional core, makes the reader's discovery and experience of awe through your book emotional, which is entirely appropriate. Yeah, you know, and that, again, you know, I remember talking with Danny Kahneman, you know, who wrote Thinking Fast and Slow, 
And we were, we were, who won a Nobel prize for his work. And, you know, and he, he's like, you know, the key for good science writing is that the reader experience the phenomenon, <laughs> you know? So if you're, you're stuttering memory, you want, and writing about it, you want the reader to like remember things. And so here I am writing this book on awe. And I, and just like you, you astutely observed, I was like, what I most want here is for the narrative and the stories I tell to bring readers their own experiences of awe, you know? And I think part of the key to that was to really lean heavily on stories of awe, you know, rather than just figures and graphs, but really to, you know, we gathered 2,600 stories from around the world of people's experiences of awe. I interviewed people, musicians and ministers and activists and indigenous scholars like Dr. Yuria Salidwin. Uh, so, you know, I wanted the reader as they read the words on the page to suddenly be like, wow, you know, I didn't know that that would, is what a minister would feel in sensing the divine looking at the lake, or that's what a near-death experience is like of Dr. Urias Alidwin. Um, and just to let the reader feel awe in, in reading. And it's interesting too, another great choice you make is the import, you lean on the import of stories. Yeah. Because we're, you know, we are a narrative species. We define yeah. ourselves yeah. by stories. So by giving us stories of awe, you feed directly into the human inclination to to understand and internalize stories. To, yeah. to take them from the inside rather than just, just see facts from the outside. You know, Rick, I like... It's embarrassing how much I love data and statistics and figures. I, I just can't help myself, you know. But when I started teaching awe in different contexts to medical doctors and judges and students, you know, I would show the graphs or the pictures of the brain and that they'd be like, that's great, you know. Um, but um, the um, when I started reading stories that people sent me of awe, I would literally hear oohs and ahs in the audience you know i remember this one you know i was teaching and this woman from mexico her husband had just died and it was one of the first stories of i gathered and she her husband died um and she was at this workshop that i was teaching and i was asking people to, to share stories of awe she raises her hand and she says well you know i'm from oaxaca and my husband daniel had passed away and you know my love of my life and i was coming to this very workshop today. Uh, and I passed this succulent and it was blossoming. It very rarely blossoms. And my husband loved that succulent, that particular species. And I felt that my husband was there. And, you know, when she told that story in the context of this course I was teaching, everybody was tearing up and, you know, reflecting deeply. And I realized like, Science is one thing, but like you said, Rick, we are a narrative species, and um, it it just it is, uh, you know, the the harder phenomena of beauty and awe and bliss and a sense of spirit, soul, probably there some of their you get closer to their essence, if you will, if you let people appreciate stories, and so there are stories throughout the book to help with the science. Now you divide it. You talk about the eight wonders of life. Yeah. So, so what are those, and how did you uh, break create that taxonomy of, of wonder and, and 
awe. That's a, a really interesting choice to do that. And it, it can't have been easy. Yeah, you know, we, um, one of the, you know, we were doing our research on awe and, you know, studying people near trees and at Yosemite and watching BBC Earth and looking at big views of the Bay Area. And, and, and um, we got concerned that, you know, this is, we're in California, this is a biased view of awe. Um, and I really started to bump into the limits of measurement that if you ask people, did you feel awe or astonishment or, you know, wonder, there's more to the experience than that, that you just can't capture with questionnaires. Uh, and so what we did is we surveyed, we gathered people's stories of awe from 26 countries, um, from Mexico to India to Germany to Brazil to, you know, South Africa, you know, uh, um, you know, Argentina, Chile, just all over the world. And then we, we translated them and classified them into um, a uh, scheme. You know, we just read them carefully. And it turns out you can account for about 95% experience, of experiences of awe with eight wonders. You know, other people's moral beauty, their sacrifice and kindness, nature, collective movement, you know, rituals and dance and sporting events, music, visual design, and spiritual practice. And then big ideas like infinity or evolution or the beginning of life, and then life and death. And that last one, you know, Rick, thanks for asking about my brother Rolf. Like I was starting to make sense of awe and feeling my own awe during grief. And, and then my collaborator, Yang Bai, came in and said, you know, we have an eighth wonder is life and death. Watching people be born, watching people die, it's just so mysterious, profound, that um, it, it was uh, eight wonder. And so those are kind of where we find this wonderful emotion that's so good for us in these eight wonders. You know, the idea of moral courage and deciding to do very difficult things, people who overcome incredible obstacles, uh, inciting awe is really interesting because that's that in itself is a story-based uh, foundation. You you can only understand that moral morally courageous choice if you understand the before and the after and the difficulty yeah. of that decision. So talk about the the kinds of examples that really inspired you and, and that you include in the book. Yeah, moral beauty was one of my. I mean, there were a few discoveries in the science that as I distilled it into this book, awe, you know, one was you can find awe all around us, which was striking to me, you know, um, and I still live by to this day, everyday awe. But the other one, another one was moral beauty. And, you know, it is the deepest universal in, uh, in, um, awe and where we find it, you know, and, and it tends to come out of a few categories. One is sacrifice. You know, I was just walking through the streets of Berkeley and this young undergrad came out of a store. There's a unhoused guy there and he gave, she gave him 30 bucks. You know, she didn't look like she had a lot of money and she's just like, here, you know, you need this sacrifice. Another one's courage. You know, one of my favorite stories in the book is this son goes into a bar in Pittsburgh that where his dad's a bartender in 1973 and he's with an African-American friend 
And one of the patrons at the bar calls, talks to the bartender and says, how can you let your son hang around an N-word, right? And the, the dad, who's the bartender, kicks the guy out of the bar and says, get out of here, never come back, right? This, this racist. And the son is overwhelmed with emotion. Um, you know, it's courage. Uh, another one is overcoming obstacles. You know, we are moved to awe when people overcome physical conditions, poverty. I remember a story of um, somebody talking about their dad who was impoverished, had all kinds of deaths in his life and managed to work for 90 years, live for 90 years and, and really devote his, himself to his kids, right? So kindness, sacrifice, courage, um, overcoming, and then extraordinary skill. Like when we see a violin player or extraordinary dancer, or an Olympic athlete, it's just like, you know, wow, you know, how could the human do that? And all of these, it's interesting, not only do they make us feel awe, but they make us want to improve ourselves. Like, look what humans are capable of, you know? And um, so it, they're wonderful sources of inspiration. You know, one thing I really like about this book is that it's not always a highfalutin, I mean, beautiful yeah. things like moral courage and, and these things which are, are important, but also it's things like sports events and, uh, and rock <laughs> concerts. <laughs> and it's true, you feel awe at those. And it's interesting to think about how important those kind of somewhat seeming trivial events are to us as a species. Thank you for noticing that. And, you know, thank you so much. Uh, one of the great things about, you know, we tend to be highfalutin, you know, and we think awe is about poetry and divine nature and spiritual epiphany. And so we just asked people, you know, this, these stories of awe, 26 countries, and they rolled in. And there was some of this highfalutin stuff, but there was a lot of stuff that was just very mundane, you know, or just every day. And one of my favorites is sports. And I love sports. I feel awe in certain sporting events, like hundreds of thousands, hundreds of millions of people, you know, I mean, if you were in Brazil, like football is, is, you know, is spiritual and lo and behold, you know, that was part of our discovery. And so it allowed me to write about things that are surprisingly awe-inspiring and imbued with meaning like sports and moving together and choir and you know, um, and uh, even just simple moving together as pedestrians in a street or going to a, a rock concert and you're in the mosh pit, you know, of a punk show. Those are transcendent experiences. I was just in a mosh pit a couple of weeks ago, you know, and it was just like, wow, transcendent. So, yeah, it's um, it, you know, this is the beauty. And I'll return to William James when he studied mystical experience and he used the word pluralism. There's so many forms of, of spirituality, mysticism, and awe, right? It could be gardening. It could be scaling El Capitan. It could be tending to your roses. It could be hear, hearing children laugh. Uh, so it's a very democratic emotion that's good for many of us. You mentioned a name that's important to this book, and I think going to become more and more important to this century, William James. Yeah. Well, so far ahead of his time. Oh, my God. Talk about him a little bit. Yeah, what a hero, you know, and, and digging into awe and writing this book. And to your point, Rick, like honoring the stories of awe. Um, you know, um, I, you know, there are people who have in, in some sense devoted their lives to awe, you know, 
who's, and most of us have moments of awe that have changed our lives. But there are people who, Julian of Norwich and her writings about her, you know, 14th century, I think, experiences with Jesus. Um, Darwin, you know, his theory of evolution comes out of experiences of awe. Ralph Waldo Emerson, Rachel Carson, you know, profoundly important environmentalist. She's all awe, you know, just like the sounds in, in Maine and the ocean tides. And then William James. And James is one of my heroes because he he's a radical. You know, he was uh, very, really struggled in life. A lot of anxiety, depression, self-doubt, you know, that's familiar to me. And then he um, he really was, you know, in his quest for the mind, he took some nitrous oxide and, you know, inspired by this um, spiritualist at the time, Paul Blood, I think it was, Paul Benjamin Blood or Benjamin Paul Blood. And, and he, James had this mystical experience. He's like, oh my God, I'm coming into contact with the fundamental it, cosmical spiritual force. And he wrote, and that led him to gather stories of mysticism and write the varieties of mystical religious experience, 1902. And, and that book set, you know, it brings together yoga and Eastern thought and drugs and Puritan ministers and Tolstoy and Whitman. And, and you know, it, what he was saying is we have this emotion that will guide us to what we consider to be divine and spiritual. And, and that is a radical statement, you know, to say it's in all of us. It's the, the feeling is, is what will guide us. And I think that feeling in many ways is awe. Yeah, an unsurprising source of awe, but awesome nonetheless is nature. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I live right near the cement boat in the Monterey Bay, mm. and I've been taking the dogs down there every morning for the past 15 years. And, and I've just, this goes to, to the daily experience of awe. One of the things this book really does is to point out that awe is not a refined experience that has to happen in, you know, a palatial cathedral with, right. you know, voices singing. It can happen when you're just on a walk with the dogs in the morning. And that's really important in terms of the human species for us to achieve happiness and also to go more, go further. I, you know, Rick, when you look at the benefits of awe, like it helps you feel less stress, it helps your immune system, it helps your heart by activating the vagus nerve, it helps you feel more well-being, helps you feel more connected and less lonely. Um, those are striking benefits for a brief experience of awe, you know, five or 10 minutes. And, you know, a lot of people ask me when they hear about all of this research, like, well, how do I find it? And I said, you know, we did this other kind of research called daily diary experiences where we survey, you ping people at the end of the day and we say, hey, did you feel awe? We did this in Japan and Barcelona and, and China and US and other places, many other countries. And, you know, people feel awe two to three times a week. So it's around them, you know, walking through a park and looking at um, leaves falling in fall going to the ocean like you do and hearing the sounds, you know, uh, looking up at the sky, you go to the, oh, the sunset, whoa, look at the changing colors. Um, for me, I, I love human beings. And, you know, when I walk through by this preschool and all the kids are playing their magical games, I'm like, God, humans are incredible, you know, and, and it's around us. And so um, that tells us 
you know, just as you do walking your dog, like just open your mind a bit to where all may be right around you. Uh, take it in, reflect on it, think about what's what is awe inspiring and why, and and you may surprise yourself with how meaningful things can get because it's a wonderful thing to tap into. And here's a, one of the great powers of this book is that it will help you surprise yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Which is really a, a good thing. You mentioned music as the fourth yeah. wonder of life. And yeah. I think that's really interesting uh, on both sides of the equation, either hearing it or making music. Talk about those two sides. Yeah, you know, um, there's just this fascinating new science of music you know, in archaeology and the study of, you know, the acoustic structure of this, the sounds we produce to make music to how it affects us. And, you know, the, the first clear sense, and you get this more from the stories is when we make music with other people, there's this merging into a collective sense of we, that we're producing beautiful things that have meaning. And routinely, people feel awe. You know, the, the Yumi Kendall, the cellist that I interviewed, just, you know, her stories of awe of making music are profound. You know, of thinking of the death of her grandfather and thinking about the meaning of music to her. She tears and cries and the like. Um, so, you know, and, and it's interesting, Rick. I have um, one of the places where people have really talked, you know, written to me you know, in the four months the book's been out, it's like, man, I sing in a choir. And when I sing with other people, I'm crying. I love them. You know, it's spiritual. So making music is a source of awe. And then for those of us who don't make music like me, um, is to appreciate it, to find awe in the music, to find specific moments of music. Like for me, the Beatles or Sona Jobarte, this great um, African musician where they just, their sounds move my body and mind in a way where I'm feeling like this is really awe and mat what matters. You know, um, one thing about music, too, is that yeah. it's a really high bandwidth form of communication. Profoundly all, so. All you have to hear is just two notes, and that can convey things that words cannot convey, emotions, a place, a time, instantly. And you'd spend... A, an hour and a half lecturing somebody as to what what it yeah. is <laughs> yeah yeah you know it, exactly right i mean in some sense music is one of the most sophisticated complicated storytelling devices we have and and people are making progress on how is it that music tells the story of all um and you know uh and it it tells the story of awe because it it starts to resemble the sounds of awe, whoa, the feeling of awe, and it triggers it in us. And it activates this deep cultural story. Uh, like you said, that you can't explain it. You've got to feel it and experience it. And it was hard to write about music for that reason. You know, I was like, ah, what do I do? And, and so I lean more on stories in that chapter just to let readers know, like, think about the music that brings them awe, sort of observe their bodies and, and how they're moved by that music. and. Um, and uh, and then go experiment, find the, the music that brings them. As Yumi Kendall, the cellist I interviewed, said, it feels like a cashmere blanket of sound, you know, they're just surrounding us. And I was like, that's it. That's what awesome music does, wherever it is, whether it's country and Western or 
Chopin's piano sonatas. And, and uh, um, so that is striking. You also talk about the visual things that are we create, yeah. these huge cathedrals. I remember seeing, uh, going to England and seeing just this gigantic cathedral on the inside and outside. And then it was within, you know, a 15-minute a, a walk practically to Stonehenge, which are yeah. two completely different forms of visual awesomeness, yet they both are united by looking, seeing the things that man can create visually that speak to us in ways that, again, language can't. Yeah, yeah. You know, and and I think that, you know, there's this sense in the, the study of culture right now that culture is not random. It has this language, if you will, and it, it's a, a whole complicated set of systems that makes us feel things and understand our shared identity through, you know, visual devices like ceramic patterns and masks and cathedrals and the stained glass windows being examples of things that make us feel awe together. And when we share that feeling, we we have this sense of like, hey, we are the, we are a tribe. We're part of this culture. This is what we care about. Um, and um, and you know that is often underappreciated about why we build cathedrals and why we paint things is is to evoke in in a, a members of a culture this sacred feeling of awe that does a lot of good for the collective. Right? It makes a sacrifice cooperate, share resources all through uh, these culturally delivered means. And so, uh, I, you know, my dad's a visual artist. And so it was a real honor to write that chapter because it, it really says like visual art, visual design is essential to the health of a culture. And one reason why is awe, right? It makes us share this emotion. Also spirituality and yeah. religion. And what's interesting too is that, you know, in the United States, um, organized religion is losing adherence, but yeah. spirituality seems to be more yeah. on an uptake. Yep. And I think that one again, one of the powers of this book is to explore that notion and to yeah. show that awe is a is not just something that's fun to, or you know educational. Awe is an essential part of the human anatomy. I mean, it's like you know your hand. You need it's your way to grab something that cannot be grabbed we you know thank you for the really deep analysis and reading you know putting this all together the physiology of awe how early how important it is to children how it benefits our bodies i was like we have a need for awe you know we need it and rachel carson made that point you know teach your child to wonder her essay like this is a biological need it's good for our health it's good for our immune system and and we have to figure out ways to allow people to cultivate that in classrooms and in hospitals and in workplaces and in homes, you know, and in our lives um, is to go out and grab it. And one of my hopes with the book is the reader will look at these eight wonders and they'll say, I'm really a music person. And, and so I'm going to go find awe more in music, right? Uh, or um, wow, I had never thought that I there are ideas out there that are awe-inspiring. Maybe I'll look into that. Maybe I'll study up on evolution or or life, the origins of life, you know, or the Big Bang or whatever. And so, yeah, I hope I hope we've lost sight of that, you know. Um, 
And in many ways, it's a great time to explore awe in many different ways. And I hope the book points us to that as a, a pathway. You know, also too, this is a keenly well-written book. Thank you. And you use uh, the role, uh, the eighth wonder that you talk about is life and death. Yeah. And again, this brings Rolf back. And yeah. the Rolf and your relationship with him, it drives the book. It turns the pages. It keeps us going. Mm. We want to see where you go with that mm. and how that fits into your life and also how that fits into our lives as because all of us experience life and death of our yeah. relatives yeah. and, you know, eventually ourselves. Yeah. You know, thanks for noticing that, Rick. Um you know, the book begins with Rolf's passing, uh, pretty much. And in some ways it ends with how I've made sense of this great mystery of when you lose people you love too young. And I, and then it's really the book is a journey, a personal journey of like, I had to, in my memories of my brother and in going to mountains that he and I hiked and having going to this retreat in India and really feeling starting to really make sense of how I as a scientist would understand his presence with me, you know, to this day, I still feel him around me. Um, how do I make sense of that? I don't, it's a mystery, right? And so the book is this wandering through my experiences of music and visual art and big ideas and digging into Darwin and, and the morally beautiful people who really matter to me, you know, uh, even if they're in prison, right, where I spend a lot of time volunteering. And and it is, I hope the reader goes along that kind of journey too, right? Because in some sense, you know, life begins with awe, <laughs> you know, like the child comes out, wow, this is incredible. And then it ends, as we know from the study of near-death experiences, with awe. And in between, we want to find a lot of this emotion. And so it is very personal. Um, awe. Uh cues us into to something too <clears throat> that's very important it defeats one of the things that we use every day which is t d m is that am i right the default the mode the default mode network yeah and yeah. so talk about what the default net mode network does for us and how all works in to complement that and give us access really to you know the the biological things that that helped us evolve from, you know, uh, huddling, huddling hominids into uh, having a civilization. Yeah, you know, when people feel awe, um, and this is across writings and empirical studies that I've done and writings in nature like Emerson and spiritual stuff and rock concerts, they talk a lot about ego death, the small self, the self, you know, all mean egotism vanishes in Emerson's words. Something like the self kind of quiets down. And evolutionarily, to your question, you know, that's vital for hypersocial species that you can shift from my self interest and self preservation to acting in ways that benefit the collective, even at a cost to myself. And that is what awe does. Excuse me. And one of the most striking forms of evidence of this is what it does to the brain. And, you know, the default mode network, to your question, Rick, is, is big chunks of the cortex that are really about the ego. It's about my sense of identity, my sense of self, my memories about myself, my goals, 
What tasks am I doing? It keeps you advancing the self, which is important. We want to have healthy senses of self. It's good for evolution. Um, but at the same time, if we're too focused on the self, we forget about other people. We don't empathize. We don't share. We become self-critical. Uh, a lot of problems associated with obsessive self-focus. And awe, the default mode network is, is the region of the brain that it, it sort of embodies the self. And awe quiets it down. Brief moments of awe, um, you know, through viewing nature or taking psychedelics or, uh, you know, or thinking about morally beautiful people deactivate the default mode network. And it tells us, wow, this is really deep. This brief emotion quiets down that what Aldous Huxley said, you know, that nagging neurotic voice of the self that I hate hearing, you know, and a little moment of awe. And you're like, I don't hear that voice anymore. So you mentioned psychedelic drugs, and I think that this is a really interesting point because, um, it to to be honest, in my one experience with, with psilocybin, it was fairly terrifying because yeah. it shut yeah. down the default mode network so much that I didn't even feel that I had a self any longer. Yeah. But that is the kind way that we that psychedelic drugs, as you point out help enhance our understanding of awe and can make a real difference. And there's a lot of new science that's going into the study of these kind of drugs for treatments of PTSD and, you know, all sorts of uh, very difficult and addiction as, as well. Yeah, you know, um, I, I think we really have to, you know, we're in this revolution right now of psychedelics or what I prefer to call them in honor of the indigenous tradition, spirit medicines. Um, and, you know, the they're really here. Uh, they're influencing how we treat the struggles of life. And there is a pretty good story, which is the when they're used appropriately with set and setting, carefully thought through, and you have, you feel safe and you have guides and, you know, it can help you with um, addiction and depression. And if you're given a terminal disease, at the same time, as Dr. Urias Salidwin writes in a Lancet article, really must reading for anybody interested in psychedelics, or as she says, spirit medicines, she brought together a bunch of indigenous practitioners um, and uh, wrote this paper about um, in the Best Health Journal that this is a really is already becoming another form of colonization, right? That Westerners are using indigenous knowledge that is sacred, rituals that are sacred plants that are sacred, lands that are sacred, making a lot of money uh, and exploiting the cultures of indigenous people. So we really, you know, her paper is this breakthrough paper of like, let's pause and reflect and, um, and really be careful and intentional. And she outlines principles by which, you know, this whole new revolution in psychedelics, which is good for people, has to honor those traditions, has to do reparations and benefits to the traditions that the the psychedelic uses are deriving from. So as always, human innovation is complicated. And in this case, I really feel, you know, and I've changed a lot in the in the last five years, like we've got to get this this right about honoring indigenous peoples by directing benefits to their traditions, honoring their getting them involved in the protocols of psychedelic treatment, right? Where they have these millennia old 
approaches to the transcendent experience. So I'd read Dr. Yuri Salidwin as a, a guide for that. But yeah, they're they're powerful and and they're here to stay. And we're really in a very interesting period. Stephen King once quipped that uh -huh. he said, "The finest emotion is terror, and if yeah. I can create terror, I will do so. If yeah. I can't do that." I'll go for horror and try to just horrify people. And if I can't do that, I'll just go for the gross out. I'm I'm not proud. <laughs> and I think that this gets to a very interesting aspect of awe that you talk about, which is that awe and terror, I'll take Stephen King's term, are kind of like flip sides of the same emotion. You can look yeah. at the vastness of the universe and think, wow, that's just amazing. Or you can look at the vastness of the universe and think, wow, that's just terrifying. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I'd like you to talk about that kind of flip, because you talk about it too, you know, the awe of the terrible things that people can do. You know, um, one of the, the illusions of language is that it, makes you think that when you have a word like awe or terror or horror, that they're really, really distinct states off in our own space of experience. But in fact, they're always kind of mixing and transforming one into the other. And Rick, you've very nicely pointed to two neighbors of awe, which is terror, the fear of dying, right? Or existential annihilation. And then horror, like death and, you know, just, wow, look at the horrors of war. Um, and awe is often intertwined with them, you know, and you, People will write of, um, you know, seeing the bodies piled up after a genocide and, and feeling awestruck at the vastness of destruction and then realize like, oh, these are dead bodies. That's horrifying. Um, or, you know, in a mystical experience or psychedelic experience, um, you know, uh, you know, you you oscillate between terror, like I'm going to disappear like you experienced my self is gone what happened and then bringing it back to like oh i'm i'm in relation to these vast you know senses of consciousness so awe is is often in certain moments mixing with terror and horror and what i love about stephen king's quote and i didn't know that and i wish i had so thank you is that's what art does for us is art allows us to think about the horrors of war right, in an aesthetic space and feel awe, like I'm blown away at what humans can do to each other in this moment of the imagination. And, and uh, their aesthetic awe in its relationship to terror and horror allows us to really grapple with fundamental truths, right, about we do make war, how do we prevent it? We do die, how do I think about that, right? Um, and, uh, and we gain insight in the, in the wonders of awe. You know, too, um, awe does something that uh, it, <clears throat> excuse me, it helps us externalize things. Yeah, there are, are things within us that we can't talk about, don't want to talk about. Yeah, awe helps us externalize them and put them out in front of us so that we can deal with them in, in, yeah. a, in a way that's we look at them as abstract, even though there are parts of and they are I abstract. There are abstract parts of us that exactly. all allows us to externalize and say, okay, that's good. Maybe that's not so good. Yeah. Fundamental idea. Thank you. You know, 
with terror and bliss, we dissolve. We become nothing, right? And sometimes it's horrifying, terrifying, and sometimes it's just ecstatic. Awe, always there's a little fragment of the self that is contemplating the, its relation to big things out there, you know, abstractions and out in the world. And so when you feel awe out in an ecosystem, you're like, how am I in relation to this grove of trees or this, this pattern of waves? Um, if you feel awe at a sporting event, you're like, wow, I am part of 50,000 people cheering for, you know, the 49ers or the Golden State Warriors or what have you. Um, so it's always about our relation to these abstract things. And that's fundamental to happiness. And, and, you know, the person who got this best is Jane Goodall. And she said, you know, observing chimpanzees express awe, she said, is it, you know, they're, they're feeling this, they're doing this dance around a waterfall and showing awe. Isn't it amazing that these, this is the beginnings of their awe or spirituality that we feel, which is really about being amazed at things outside of yourself. And now in psychological science, we call that meaning, right? I, to have a meaningful life, I've got to relate to some abstract things like justice or community or a sense of the divine or protecting the environment. Um, and awe is the pathway to the, that sense of purpose or meaning. Uh, speaking of externalizing our emotions, uh, you worked on a project with Pixar that did just that. Yeah. Yeah, I was part of the Inside Out crew and also the Soul crew, both made by Pete Docter, a great director at Pixar. And, you know, that it, it was one of the greatest privileges of my career to be part of those films. And, um, uh, and in particular, Inside Out, you know, which is like I met with, with their, the core storytellers and, you know, data visualizers and so forth for years. And just to, to bring the wisdom to a broad audience that I think they delivered on of that emotions like we started with should not be ignored. They are um, they are the fundamental a fundamental driver of consciousness, right? Of how we act, just as is represented in the movie. And with respect to awe, I think awe is really about what do we find most meaningful in life and how do we build communities that that sort of enact that sense of meaning that allow us to express that sense of meaning um and so the movie was a absolute delight to work on and so amazing to see how art as we talked about earlier you know can take the science and then really make people understand it much more so than any scientific talk i could give well that's the the beauty of this book is you made the wise decision to embrace the art of storytelling and the art of writing to talk about science in a way that allows you to display the power of science, the power of the data, and the power of, you know, just gathering all these experiences and then talk about what you gathered were, the pieces you gathered were stories. And I think that's so interesting. It's so much more than numbers. It tells us so much more than numbers. Yeah, you know, and let's return to music, you know, Rick. I mean, man, is it hard to have language describe our experience in music? I think it's the hardest because it's it's a different form of communication. And when I, you know, I've done some great papers on music and emotion, very proud of them, but they don't get anywhere close to how it is that it means so much to us. And so I interviewed people 
you know, I interviewed Yumi Kendall, a musician, and I, you know, talked to musicians out there like Sona Jobarte um, about their experiences with music. We gathered these stories from around the world about, you know, how you could sense the divine in being in a little chapel in Europe candlelit chapel and hearing choir singing you know so yeah it stories stories have a complexity and a multiple layers to them and they are not bounded by time and linear causality that measures that i use are and i think we're the key to this book frankly and i'm i'm so glad you've highlighted that you know as a lab scientist i was like oh my god you know i just can't write about music so Let's go hear what people say about it. And I think it was the key. So, You, you know, too, um, the interest and power of this book, too, is not just the rare experience of awe, but uh, the everyday experience of awe. And that's one of the things that you come back to in this book and, and emphasize, which is that, this is, and we, you said this earlier, we all experience awe two to three times a week and we don't yeah. think about it. And I think yeah. that by placing awe as something to think about so that when we, when we do experience it, we can go from one experience to the next and let us and let those experiences inform how the default mode works. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, the other key theme of the book is the everydayness of awe. You know, if you just slow down, and reflect and think about big things and small things and origins and and I I offer Rachel Carson's guide to how to find everyday awe um, in a part of the book. But you know the the one of the my hopes is when somebody reads this through their experiences of reading it and sense of the stories and the momentary experiences of awe, um, they'll come out of it. And people have been telling me this. And suddenly, like how when they walk, it feels different. And when they when the sun sets, they're more likely to peer over and look at it and look at the clouds. And when they look at somebody, uh, a stranger in the streets, they may look at their eyes and suddenly feel like, ah, oh, there is sort of this collectivity and, and notice the collective effervescence of, of urban life. So, yeah, I hope the reader leaves the book with this sense like everyday awe. Um, I can find it in my own unique way and it connects me to what is good about humanity. The new book by Dacher Keltner is Awe, the New Science of Everyday Wonder and How It Can Transform Your Life. Thank you for talking to me, Dacher. Rick, what a spectacular set of questions. I appreciate your very deep reading of this book, and thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.